Hello, everybody, and welcome to this latest of the Ipsos Views podcast series. Today, I am interviewing Peter de Richter, who is the regional head for syndicated studies in our healthcare division. He works across Middle East, North Africa and APAC, so he's got a very, very broad geographic scope and been exposed to lots of different research in many different regions and many different cultures and contexts. He's just released a brand new white paper called Conquering Complexity, the Ongoing Revolution in Oncology Biomarker Testing, which I've read and very much enjoyed, but I won't pretend to have understood all of it, which is why it's really a great opportunity for me now to talk directly to Peter and to hear more from him about what the paper is saying and how important it is to the future of cancer treatment. In the West, certainly those countries which have very high life expectancy we think probably up to one in two people will suffer from cancer at some point in their lives. So this is something that's going to be very relevant to all of us as the general public. Obviously, the paper is directed more at a clinical and professional audience. But hopefully today, Peter will be able to express it in language that will mean something to idiots like me. So, Peter, it's very good to meet you. Likewise, Ian. Thanks you very much for the introduction. And it's really great to be on this podcast today. So, Peter, uh, the title of your recent paper is Conquering Complexity. I did find it quite complex. I'm not sure that I conquered it. So what are you referring to when you talk about complexity in the context of cancer treatment? Sure. So so cancer, um, in essence, is is a complex disease or really a complex set of diseases. And this really starts all the way from if you start thinking about what cancer really is. And people generally think about cancer as a single disease uh, and may talk about it in the same way as I talk about, say, diabetes or HIV uh, or hepatitis or any other sort of single concrete disease. But really, cancer is uh, a a very um, complex set of many different diseases. And I think most people now have a a realization that at least it's quite different to be diagnosed with, say, breast cancer than to be diagnosed with lung cancer or uh, cancer of the bowels, for example. Um, So that that understanding has been there for quite some time um, that there is an implication in terms of how these cancers should be treated based on which organ is uh, impacted. However, it goes much, much further and deeper than that. So it's really not not just about the organ or or even the type of cell that is impacted. But what researchers have really come to realize is that what what really is the crucial factor is more about the the genetic elements, the the sort of submicroscopic elements in the cancer cell in terms of what genes, what proteins are ultimately involved in that cancer. Um, And that's where that, that real extra layer of complexity is um, that can be very intimidating for everyone involved in cancer treatment including even the oncologist one thing that was clear from your paper was that the the key development here is in biomarker testing many of the people listening to this won't know what biomarker testing actually means could you explain to us what that does mean please the term biomarker testing is, is really just a very general and, and quite vague term, uh, really. You know, even taking somebody's temperature, for example, is, is falls under the umbrella of a biomarker test. So really, um, at its sort of most um, uh, general, it, uh, a biomarker test is really just taking a measure of something related to the biology of the patient or their, their disease. Uh, however, when we talk about it in the context of, of cancer, and particularly cancer drug treatment, it does tend to be used in a much more specific way. So we tend to talk about 
specific tests that look at, for example, what mutations, what gene mutations or other, other genetic abnormalities are present in that patient's cancer cells, or um, if there are any proteins that the building blocks of the cells that are present in um, larger quantities than, than normal, for example. Those are the types of, of biomarkers that physicians and, and researchers tend to refer to when they talk about biomarker testing. Most of the paper focuses on the ways in which biomarker testing has evolved and is continuing to evolve. In fact, I think you described it as a revolution. The tone of the paper seemed quite optimistic to me, and I, I'm getting the impression you think this really will improve outcomes quite considerably for patients. That, that, that's what I'd like to think, uh, certainly. And, you know, I think we, we've we've come a long way. I think that that is sort of the general tone that I, I'm trying to set with the paper is to sort of really give a, a sense of, of progress. And, uh, you know, I am really... There is an element of, of optimism there. Now, I am convinced that a lot of progress has been made. Um, however, uh, there's also still a lot of progress yet to be made. Uh, but in, in answer to you, you know, your first question in terms of some of the, the key um, evolutions or even you know, revolutions that, that are, as I put it in a paper that we've observed, um, there's a number of things that have sort of happened um, in the past 10 years, even five years that have sort of happened concurrently. Um, and without going into too, too much technical detail, um, you know, there's a number of really sort of interesting developments that happened side by side um, and that kind of came together at the right time that I, that I highlighted in the paper. And, and the first one of those is, is really um, gradually moving away from relying on um, just taking tissue samples of cancer patients um, to do that biomarker testing. That's always been the standard approach because at the end of the day, it makes sense. You know, you have a, um, if you're talking about a, a cancer in a specific organ like the breast or the lung or uh, the colon, you have a clump of cells and you want to sample those cells and you want to look at what is present in those cells. Um, so for many years, that was always a standard approach because there wasn't really any alternative. However, it kind of became clear uh, through some very clever research that, that uh, a number of, uh, of researchers around the world have been involved with for, for years, that um, you actually don't need to necessarily go into the cancer itself to test for those biomarkers. You can actually do a, a blood test, for example, and look for the presence of some of those biomarkers like the gene mutations in the blood. Um, that was sort of known for quite some time, but the, the, quite some time, sorry, but the, there were um, a lots of technical hurdles to be overcome because the, the, the technology just wasn't there. The tests weren't specific enough, weren't accurate enough to pick up those mutations in the blood, for example. But because there's been so much uh, innovation and uh, so many advances in terms of the sensitivity of those tests, etc., uh, researchers and now clinicians as well and laboratories can now actually take a blood test and say, okay, this cancer, this patient actually has these types of mutations in the cancer without having to go back and take a solid sample from the actual tissue. So that's one key development. Another key development is, is sort of a gradual move away from saying, okay, I'm going to do a test for mutation X, um, and then um, if that test's negative, then I'll look for mutation Y, and then if that test's negative, maybe I'll do a third test, uh, and then I'm sort of out of options because it's just, you know, you run out of tissue or you don't really know what else to test for. For a long time, it was, that was really just the approach that, you know, we would be looking at very few, very specific biomarkers. 
but now again, thanks to uh, advances in technology such as uh, gene sequencing and the, the price of sequencing having come down very significantly in, even in the past two years, it's now possible to say, um, let's test for 50, 100, even 500 different biomarkers at the same time which has massively improved the workflow, but it's also given, given physicians a lot more information to potentially act on. And then what's kind of happened is that those two, two technologies have come together and we now see these, um, these multi-gene panels, as they're, they're referred to, um, that can test for many different mutations, often in the hundreds of different mutations based on a simple blood test. And that is something that, you know, 10 years ago would have been completely inconceivable. And so, with, you know, regards to your second part of your question in terms of what does that ultimately mean for the patient and, and for the doctors and for us as researchers, um, you know, I, I have to kind of caveat with that. It's not like we suddenly, you know, we, we're about to cure cancer. These are as as important as these advances are, these are, are just steps in our ongoing battle against cancer. And, and they have resulted in uh, improved patient outcomes. We are seeing every year, um, thanks to better drugs, but also thanks to better testing to get the right drugs to the patients, we are seeing these improvements in um, survivability and overall survival. But we still have a long way to go. Uh, what it means to us as researchers, you know, as market researchers in this space, um, it has many different implications, but I would say, you know, the, the main implication is coming back to that. The first part of the conversation, it does add that extra layer of complexity and there's many sort of different things that weren't even a factor five, ten years ago that we now also need to take into account when, when talking to physicians in terms of how do, we, do they approach treating certain patients. It sounds to me that, that the technology is catching up with the theory here. Uh, and we, as you said, we've known about this stuff for a long time. What what sort of role is AI playing in this? Is it because of increased computational power that we're able to do more gene sequencing now? Absolutely. So, so you know, I think that the, the integration of AI is sort of an, another, you know, almost happy consequence of, you know, we, we kind of all of this is happening at the right time, where, whereas in the background, driven by, you know, of course, by other industries, uh, computing power and AI is something that has uh, taken leaps and bounds, and it's really getting us to a place where we can integrate AI into healthcare. That in itself is a massive topic, but I think this this integration of AI into oncology biomarker testing is starting to happen and is, is already happening as we speak. And the reason why it's become necessary really is because of um, this overload almost of information that suddenly um, the pathologists, the oncologists uh, have to deal with, you know, whereas before uh, they would get a report and they would say, okay, I tested for three markers. Um, three different biomarkers and two of them were negative, one was positive. That's not that difficult to then know what do I do with that information. However, when they get a report and it says, you know, we tested for 500 markers and here is a big run through of what, what, what the outcome of all of these tests is, it's very hard to a physician to then know um, what do I do with all this information? What does this ultimately mean to my patient? Um, so we are seeing more and more integration of, of AI into that workflow where actually before a physician even gets to see a report, it will get run through some sort of uh, artificial intelligence software by, by uh, one of the commercial providers, for example, that provide these biomarker tests. And, and then you have 
for you know very clever software looking at um, the um, likelihood of response to certain treatments based on the unique genetic profile of those patients, for example. Or other examples would be the likelihood of the cancer recurring after surgery based on analyzing um, gene expression profiles across many different genes. Again, it would be really, really hard for an oncologist to do that manually and they don't have the time for it. So that's where AI software uh, does come in. You're suggesting that this technology, these techniques are becoming mainstream in certain markets. Do you think this process is going to accelerate? I mean, is cost going to be a factor with this technology? Do you think that's going to inhibit it? Uh, it, it is. It is uh, unfortunately the reality of the situation. You know, I'm based out here in Asia, and especially you know many of these things that I talked about. Um, these advances have um, happened in uh, Europe. They've happened in the US. They are happening to some extent in the region here. You know, in, in some of the more um, uh, affluent markets. You know, like for example Australia or other markets like South Korea. We are seeing an uptake of some of those um, technologies, but uh, in many other countries, particularly out here in Southeast Asia where I am based, we're starting to see that um, we're facing real barriers in terms of the ability to, um, for the healthcare system or for the patients to be able to pay for these technologies. So even though I mentioned uh, the cost of, of sequencing has come down massively, it's still in many cases in many countries uh, a real barrier uh, and, and even even some of those older technologies that I mentioned earlier, uh, just the single biomarker testing, that is often still a barrier in, 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 in some countries and um, you know we, we don't even have the basics there yet in terms of a good reimbursement system for uh, single biomarker testing. So to get to that place where we need to be in terms of making these advances felt terms of running these massive gene panels using AI technology, etc. Unfortunately, the reality of the situation is in some countries, we're still very far removed from that. And the, by far the number one reason of that is cost. Um, and there's other reasons as well that are tied into cost, such as um, just logistical um, reasons, lack of access to technology, uh, etc. So it's a mixed picture at the moment, but you started to speculate about some of the innovations that might happen in the years to come. And to again to a lay person like myself some of it sounded quite futuristic i just wonder based on what you just said about where we are today and the cost being a factor and obviously the mixed picture across the world different regions different markets how realistic are, are those future technologies and do you feel optimistic about the picture globally I would say so. I think I know it's, it's as you said, it is very much a mixed picture. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's it's what, what I've sort of learned in, as, as somebody involved in the, the oncology industry for for uh, you know, a number of decades now is that uh, it's 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 really quite frustrating sometimes on the one hand, because you see all of these you know advances in the preclinical stage being talked about at these uh, conferences. And then, you know, you, you, you don't see that being translated into real advances sort of immediately. But then you take a step back and you sort of look at, well, what's actually happened in the last 10 years or even the last five years. And it's actually quite remarkable how far we have come. Um, so in that sense, you know, I think even though things don't always move as quickly as we want and there's a real urgency to come up with better solutions, things are still moving very quickly and probably even faster in oncology than in any other uh, space. Um, but there's still so, so far to go. And, you know, some of those, those uh, futuristic sounding technologies that I mentioned in the closing paragraphs in the paper, uh, 
I, I part of me has no doubt that we will get there and you know there's sort of there's nothing magical about them I mean, some of them sound like they're almost magic but essentially it's really just a matter of continuing to work on the science step by step making those advances and we will get there um, but yes at the same time we have to be realistic it's not going to happen overnight it's going to be a set of very incremental stage st stages and, and, and developments and, and, and um, essentially advances that will ultimately get us to that goal of, of beating cancer and also to be caveated with the fact that unfortunately the reality of the world is that um, some patients based on what they can afford their insurance situation where they were born um, is going to massively influence how quickly they're going to be able to benefit from those technologies, unfortunately. So that is that is something that, you know, my, my hope and my dream is that at some point all of humanity will be able to benefit from these uh, revolutions and cancer is going to be essentially beaten and a thing of the past. Unfortunately, the reality is that it's going to happen sooner for some people than, than for others, uh, but we just have to keep keep working on that, that equal access and keep working on, on making sure that those advances are um, fairly distributed across the world and removing some of those affordability barriers uh, to the extent that we can. Peter, thank you very much. I've enjoyed that very much and I think you've uh, you've done a lot to explain some of the more complex technical aspects of your paper. For, for anybody listening to this who is interested in learning more about it, I would urge you to seek it out. It's available on ipsos.com. It's called Conquering Complexity, the Ongoing Revolution in Oncology Biomarker Testing. Of course, Peter, I'm sure himself, would be very happy to speak to anybody who would like to reach out to him. And uh, Thank you very much, Peter. It's uh, been my absolute pleasure, Ainsley, and uh, thank you very much. <laughs>